We pray with the whole church of all time, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. For as the church year draws to a close, we turn our hearts and our minds again to the promises of our Savior that he will come. Heavenly Father, we know that you hold the day and the time and the seasons in your hands, and you have chosen the perfect day for his return. So we ask that that day would come soon, that you would bring all to repentance, that on that great and glorious day we might stand before our Savior Jesus and be welcomed into your heavenly paradise. Keep us steadfast in the faith until that day. And let us spend our days meditating on your holy word, that in these words we might see our Savior Jesus and trust in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Okay, so um, today we're going to dive into John 6. I know we started last week. We kind of did a little introduction. As a matter of fact, maybe the first three questions. But uh, we're going to review that quickly just so we have an idea of what's what's going on moving forward. Um, Any questions about this week or any other week of your life that you've been wanting to ask? (laughs) Yes? Well, we were having a family discussion this week. Good. I like that. On on Jews. Yes. Um, And we were trying to discern whether Jews are Jewish as a religion or whether it's an ethnicity. Yes. Some others said yes. Yes. Both. Others said no, it's a religion. Yes. (coughs) Everybody's right. That's the good news in a family discussion. Everybody's right. So, uh, Jewish. This is even true in the New Testament. This is part of the problem. Jewish or Jews or even Israel, it can be an ethnicity, which means you can trace your bloodline to Abraham. Okay? If it's an ethnicity, that means you can trace your bloodline to Abraham. And the way you do that is through the 12 tribes of Jacob. Okay? So in one way to use the word Jewish... A lot of people today will say, I'm, a, I'm Jewish, meaning they were born to parents that can trace their bloodline back to the 12 tribes of Israel, back to Abraham. Okay? Does that make sense? Jewish can also mean that they're from Israel. It could be a synonym with Israelite, which means they were born in Israel or they're from Israel. It doesn't necessarily mean, these aren't necessarily the same thing, right? They could be a non Jewish ethnically person who was born in Israel who is now moved to the United States, they could be Jewish in that way. Does that make sense? Then there's also the religious aspect. Okay? So there is a religion that is known as Judaism and so they could be a, they consider themselves Jewish from a religious point of view, which may or may not coincide with these two things. Right? You don't have to be ethnically John to Abraham to be Jewish anymore, um, nor do you have to be from Israel to be Jewish in the religion. But this religion then are the people who read and believe what they consider to be the Old Testament, but this but they are marked by the rejection of Jesus as Messiah. Okay? These are the people who read the Old Testament but reject Jesus as the fulfillment of the Messianic promises. Does that make sense? And just like Christianity, there are different denominations within Judaism. There are different theologies within Judaism. There are different, there are liberal Jews, conservative Jews, there are atheistic Jews. I mean, just the whole gambit, okay? Does that make sense? Yes. So so when you use the word Jewish, you know, and then people say, well, Jesus was Jewish. See, and that's where it gets kind of messy to say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, yes, he can trace his ethnicity to Abraham, and he was born and raised in Israel, and he did believe in the religion of the Old Testament, but not the one that ended up rejecting him as Messiah. So not really the same Judaism that we have now. So when someone says to you, well, you, you can't reject the Jews because Jesus was Jewish, you, you can actually say, no, not in the religion that you have today. He was not part of the religion that we have today. It was a different religion. Jesus' religion is what we call today Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. <laughs> <laughs> how, did this, how did Jesus celebrate 
celebrate Passover? Uh, he, he went to Kansas <laughs> and watched. He was the, I mean, he's who Passover's talking about. Well, that's exactly the point. Welcome to John 6. Because it starts by saying it was Passover. So Jesus celebrates the Passover. So Jesus celebrates the Passover until the giving of the Last Supper, right? We'll go with that. He celebrates it as a faithful Jew, believing that Jesus is going to fulfill, or, or that God is going to fulfill his promise in sending a Messiah to rescue his people. Now he happens to know, well, that's me. <laughs> But he doesn't seem to say that yet. He, he gives hints at it during his earthly ministry. But you know, when he's growing up, he's like, he's like, uh, uh, yes, mom, I'm hearing your prayers. You know, <laughs> he's not doing that to Mary. He's there as a fa- he's obe- he's obedient. Remember, part of Jesus growing up as a human is that he's perfectly obedient. He's obedient to his parents. He's obedient to the Old Testament. He's obedient to God. He right. He's obedient. So he celebrated as a good Jewish male would as he grows up in every stage of his life. That's why I say male, because when he was little, he would have celebrated as the firstborn child. And then when he was a teenager, he would have celebrated going, is it over yet? No, I'm just kidding. He didn't. But see, that's the thing is he didn't. He didn't celebrate as an angsty teenager. He celebrated as the perfect teenager. So whatever role that was for a Jewish teenager, he did that. Does it make sense? But yes, all the while, he's kind of going, <laughs> just you wait. <laughs> well, so then, you're always looking for the Messiah, right? Yeah, and he's kind of going, oh, we're looking for a Messiah. And he's kind of going, <laughs> you know. But again, we don't want to picture Jesus kind of walking around telling everyone he's Messiah because he didn't do that until his earthly ministry. When he was growing up, he was simply an obedient child, obedient to the scriptures, obedient to his parents, obedient to his teachers, obedient, right? And we know that obedience is actually a gift from God. It would be better for you if you were 100% obedient. It would be better for you if you were 100% obedient. Hmm. Oh, my girls are home from college. I don't think they're better or not. <laughs> It would be better for all of us if we were 100%. But actually, this is, it's true. If you think of all the things that you could be given as a gift, would any of you choose obedience? Perfect obedience. But it actually would be a gift. If you were perfect, perfectly obedient, you would never sin. God's word says something and you do it. It says don't do this and you don't do it. That would be great. Do you know what you call that? Jesus, but yeah, for you, what will you call that? When will you live in perfect obedience? Heaven. Heaven. So when Jesus says to the, the thief on the cross today, today you will be with you in paradise, that will be perfect obedience. So here's my suggestion. Try it now. I thought part of Dr. Charles Stanley's... Yeah, wonderful. What is... Charles Stanley... He is He is what I what I commonly label American Christianity. As he was talking about walking with with Jesus and let God accept Jesus into your heart yeah. and then follow God and walk with yeah. walk in step with God. Yeah. In your life. So yeah. Parts of it it sounds really good. He uses a lot of Christian words. So uh, Charles Stanley is an example of what I, when I say, when I teach and I say American Christianity does this or says this, the, there's this, the, a bunch of teachers online that you can listen to or, or, or wherever you listen to your stuff, podcasts or whatever, that kind of represent this American Christianity, which is kind of a mishmash of all Protestant denominations that have ever existed. And um, there's a lot of good things in there, but, but um, yeah. Not going to be very sacramental. Not going to be very good on justification, meaning how we're saved. They're going to mix a lot of um, what we do in there. It was like what we do. Yeah, and that's what you're going to hear a lot. Is there? Jesus did a lot of good stuff. Now it's your turn to do a lot of good stuff. And that's how you get this whole God and you thing together is by you doing good stuff. And we say, 
Well, if that's the case, then me and God will never be on the same page because I ain't that good, right? So we actually say that that me and God, how does that? How does me and God work out? Only in Christ, right? Because of what Christ has done, that I am with God, not because how I'm doing, living it out. Now, because you are in Christ, how do you live? Perfect obedience would be good, right? Try it. But, but your ability to do that never determines your standing before God, right? It's a reaction to your standing before God. Because God has saved me, I desire to walk in his will. We said this in the confessions today, right? When you confess your sin, you said, at the end of all this, I don't want to go back and sin some more. I want to learn to delight in your will and to walk in your way, right? Not to get forgiveness, but because I am forgiven. See, and that's, that's what we would say is, yes, walk with God, absolutely. Walk in his ways, absolutely. It's in First John, it says that. If you're going to believe in him, you should walk in his ways, just as Jesus walked, right? But it doesn't determine your relationship with God. It's a result of your relationship from God, with God. And the thing that accomplishes you and God together is the death and resurrection of Jesus alone, nothing else. Okay, so that's what you want. As you listen, you want to listen to those ears and say, okay, you're saying some good stuff, but whoa, you just put me where only Jesus belongs. And that's where we're going to say, nah, no thanks. Right? Okay? Does it make sense? And that's really, it's when you listen to Christian teachers that aren't, aren't teaching from a Lutheran point of view, that's kind of what you want to do. You just want to listen and say, yeah, it's pretty good. And then you go, whoa, hey, <laughs> not me, Jesus. <laughs> Let's go with that. And then remember, they're never going to push you towards the sacraments. They just they don't have a sacramental theology, so they're not going to highlight the role of the sacraments in this either. They're going to say that because even the sacraments they'll twist and say that's us doing stuff. That baptism is us making a promise to God, which is literally nowhere in the Bible. And then they're also going to say that that the Lord's Supper is just a, a remembrance meal that just symbolizes Jesus, which also is never taught in the New Testament. Nowhere does the New Testament say this is a symbolic meal that just symbolizes Jesus. It just never says that. If it did, guess what we would teach? That. We teach what it does say, which is Jesus said, this is my body. Then Paul said, uh, be careful when you eat that because that's actually the body of Jesus. And it has consequences. Right? So we believe that. Does that make sense? Okay. Al. So a few minutes ago, you uh, mentioned one of the most fascinating verses in the Bible, actually in today's Gospel 42 and 43, and you said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. That's fascinating. It's a total repudiation of Charles Stanley and his ilk, because the thief didn't have any time to do any good works. Yeah, so the thief on the cross, this is from, from the Gospel of Luke. Okay, we have like six hours together, right? <laughs> How many words did Jesus say from the cross? Seven. Seven words of Jesus from the cross. What are they? Good. Father, why have you forsaken me? Where is that found? Psalm 22. He's quoting Psalm 22. Very good. Excellent. Where in the Gospels is that found? That's excellent. Very good. That's impressive. Get the book from CTA. Yeah. <laughs> put it on the... Put it on the... Um, and that, that is found in Matthew and Mark. And it's the only word from the cross found in those two Gospels. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, laman sabachthani. In Aramaic. Okay? That's in Matthew and Mark. And no other words. In those two Gospels, he only says one word from the cross. We have six more to go and only two more Gospels. Guess what? Each of them will pick up three words. In Luke, you have Father, forgive them. But they don't know what they're doing. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Into your hands I commit my spirit. In John, you have Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your I thirst and it is finished. Okay? So you have seven words of Jesus 
three in John, three in Luke, and one that is shared in Matthew and Mark. Okay? Wasn't that fun? That's the way to avoid your question. <laughs> now, so now we find ourselves in the Gospel of Luke where we have the second word from the cross in Luke, which is today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, there are several problems with what Jesus says. He didn't understand theology very well, so he messed it all up. <laughs> we'll try not to go with that. We'll try to go with Jesus being God and knowing what he's doing, right? So in Luke, he says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. There's all kinds of problems with this saying. All kinds of problems. What's the biggest, most obvious problem? Just forget you're all Bible-believing Christians for a second. Just read the text. What's the obvious problem? Didn't go into paradise. They're eating paradise. Where are they? They're hanging on a cross. This is why they are mocking Jesus. They are mocking him because he is a failed Messiah who is being killed by the Romans in cahoots with his own religious people, the Jews. And they're literally making fun of him going, some Messiah you are. You're going to save all of us? You can't even save. And then he says, and this other guy's like, dude, we probably should not make fun of him because like, we deserve what we get, but he had nothing wrong. And then he turns that guy and he goes, today you're with me in paradise. And they all say, see how delusional you are? You're not in paradise. You're dying on a cross as a criminal. Crazy person. And this is a scandal of the cross. Your God, dead on a cross. That's the salvation of the world. Right? And so what happens is what you realize is that this, this is nice and this is okay, but this is the key. With me. You will be with me. And that's what we want as Christians. We simply want to be where Jesus is. Why did you get up on this cold morning and put on your, your Sunday best and come to this place? Why would you do that? Because Jesus shows up in my church. And I want to be where Jesus is. And with all you fine people too. But I want to be where Jesus is. And guess what he's saying to that thief? Today, you're going to be exactly where I am. And where I am is paradise. It's a promise. So here's the thing. When, when you die in Christ, Gus, who will never leave you for one split second? Jesus. Lo, I will be with you always to the end of the ages. See, when you are baptized into Christ, when you have faith in Christ Jesus, that means he will never leave you. So if you're dead on a cross somewhere, guess what? You're with him. And that is paradise. And there will be a day when he will come back to end this world and we will literally live with him for all of eternity with him. And therefore that will be paradise. And people say, what's it going to be like? And you say, well, I think it's going to be a guy who's delivering pizza every second of every day. It's for pizza. Because pizza, right? I love pizza. Or I think it's going to be Kansas State winning every game like they did yesterday. You know, no. And, and you, what you do is you stand with all these goofy things. But guess what? No, it's going to be paradise because it's going to be with Jesus. And that's what he's promising. And this, and, and the cool thing about this is it eliminates our role at all. Right? Well, you got to do good works. It's like, well, the, the best thing he did is he didn't make fun of Jesus. So I guess you can count that as a good work, but not really. That's kind of just the least, least he could do, right? So the thief on the cross, and people say, oh, well, he wasn't baptized. And you go, yeah, because baptism hasn't been instituted yet. Don't worry about it. That's coming later. Because guess what baptism does? It unites you. It unites you. With Christ. Romans chapter 6. Don't you know all you who are baptized are baptized into Christ? Which means that now you've been baptized, you are in Christ. Well, guess what? This is baptismal language. 
This is the same Jesus who gives us baptism who is saying, you are with me. Well, that's baptism. Right? Is baptism water? It's not just water. It's water combined with God's word. Well, guess what? You have the word of God speaking the word of God doing the promises that we receive in baptism. No problem, right? Now we have it given to the church, water, word, sacrament. Remember, all the sacraments are post-death and resurrection of Jesus. I know the words of Jesus before he dies. Don't worry about it. Okay? We'll get there in a second. Also, this takes place before the death of Jesus and all the signs that happen. Uh-huh. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's that's why that's why the point is you're with Jesus. Do you think there were some believers at that point when those oh sure signs? Yeah, yeah, not a lot, not very many. Pretty much the Apostle John, you know. He's the only disciple that shows up at the cross, so you know. Yay, John! <laughs> but yeah, the you know Mary seems to have believed this whole time, even as she watches all this. She's treasuring all these things. The women go back to the tomb, and you know they have some kind of faith. Maybe not a full faith, but they have some kind of faith. The disciples are still together as disciples, even though they're kind of freaking out about his death. But they're still together as disciples, and he recommissions them. So, yeah, you know, does that make sense? Right. right. Yeah. All he does is, and we don't even know how much he realizes. All he realizes is that he's innocent, and it says above him he's the king of the Jews. That's all he knows. Right? I mean, that's it. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're with me. Which, again, it's never the measure of our faith or our understanding or our ability to do things that determines paradise. Right? It's the promise of God in Christ. And that promise is always given to people who don't deserve it. Always. It is never given based on your abilities. It is given out of the love of God for sinners. So Jesus here is confronting a sinner who brings nothing to the table. And Jesus gives to him an eternal promise. And it is kept in the death and resurrection of Jesus. This promise is kept as he dies and rises for that thief. Right? Does that make sense? Do we know if that thief was a Jew? We don't. We don't know anything about him. We, there are lots of legends that are made stuff up for plays and movies and, and books, but no, we don't know anything. Probably was the way he was being crucified, but could have been a Roman too. Because remember, the king of the Jews is written above Jesus' head in different languages including Latin. Okay? One question in regards to the, to the uh, communion. Uh, it's the true body and blood of Christ. It is. But in the, in the Gospels, there's, I don't remember if it was Mark or which one it was, but it says, in remembrance of me. Yeah. Just as it's said That's right. when we pray That's right. upstairs. Yep. So what... Why is that said in remembrance of me rather than this is my body? It does say this. It says both. Mm -hmm. It's both. So what what happened is is that the... hmm. Okay. I don't know how to answer this other than this way, so if I don't get it, don't let me stop. Make me come back and try again, okay? The Lord's Supper... Here's the thing. When When Jesus gave the Lord's Supper, the disciples went... Okay. Oh. Because Jesus said a bunch of crazy stuff, right? So they just listened and they took it and they received it from Jesus' hands and they didn't, I don't know. Okay. Here's this guy. He hasn't died or risen yet. And he's going, here, this is my body. They're like, 
Okay? I mean, you know, Jesus has done said a lot of weird things so far. And they don't get it. But then when he dies and he rises, they're like, oh, like, this is my body. Right? And from the get-go, from the get-go, you can read church history and look at this out. The church believed that it was truly present in the bread and wine, the body and blood. Okay? Right away, from right away, the early church writes this stuff. That when you receive the bread and wine, you receive the body and blood of Christ. And it actually does stuff. It forgives sins. It gives eternal life. And if you take it against without with not believing that, it'll kill you. This is, this is right away in the early church. As a matter of fact, we have writings that are at the same time as the New Testament teaching this. Church fathers say this as though no one's even questioning it. They're like, everybody knows that when, when you receive the, body, the bread and wine, you receive the body and blood of Christ. So this isn't even questioned. Right? Never questioned. What happened is... Um, about the turn of the millennium, so around 1000 AD, people really started getting into philosophy again, and what happened is Aristotle, have you ever heard of Aristotle? Yeah. He, he was a professional tutor for this guy named Alexander the Pretty Good. <laughs> and that's a loose translation. And Aristotle had all these categories of beings and stuff, and, and the church was like, hey, if we use Aristotle, which the early church also used for the Trinity, but if we use Aristotle to define the Lord's Supper, we could actually explain all how all this happens, right? And they can say, well, here's what happens. Um, the, the substance of the bread and the substance of the wine actually changes into the substance of body and blood of Jesus, right? But the accidents, which is just kind of how it tastes and feels and looks, they don't change. So the bread and wine remain in the form of accidents, which is where we get the word accident from, which is the non-essential part of a substance. So I know this is really weird. You're all looking at me like I'm from Mars. It's okay. So Aristotle said this, everything has substance, everything has accidents, okay? So you are the substance of a person, but your accident would be the color of your hair, your height, right? Because what that means is the substance of a human is not changed if you're taller or shorter. You're still human. You just, and some of you, nobody in this room, but some of you would color your hair perhaps. Okay? That doesn't change the substance of your being. It's not like you walk into the hairdresser and you're, and you're not a human. Then you walk and you're like, ooh, now I'm a human. No, your substance doesn't change, right? But your accident or an accidental characteristic of you, which is the color of your hair, changes. But that doesn't change your substance, right? Well, what they taught was is that the, the substance is actually transformed. Okay? So they said what's happening here is a, is a change of substance, a transubstantiation where the substance of bread and wine is changing to the substance of body and blood of Jesus, but the accidents, the characteristics that we can see and touch and taste and feel, they don't change. So you're like, well, it tastes like bread. Like, yes, but that's not the real substance of what you're eating. What you're actually eating is the, the blood of Christ or the bread of Christ. Or the, sorry, body of Christ. Right? And that's the tedious transubstantiation. And that was the Roman Catholic view kind of for quite a while. It still is. Okay? In the time of Luther, which is the Reformation, which is about the 1500s, Luther went, I don't think that's actually what the Bible says. It's not actually what the Bible says. It doesn't talk about accidents and substance and that kind of stuff. I said, he's like, I think what the Bible actually just kind of says is that Jesus is really present. That there's bread and wine and body and blood and Jesus is really present, but it doesn't tell us how that happens. It just kind of says it is. And we should just go with Jesus' words on this and stick with that. And they said, well, what are you teaching? He's like, well, he's really present. Are you saying you believe in the real presence? And he's like, well, yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. Are you rejecting transubstantiation? He goes, well, I just don't think you can put that fine of a point on it. I don't think that's actually what it says. That might be a way to explain it, but I kind of think it's going too far. 
Okay? And that's how he started out in his, in his deliberation with the Lord's Supper. So then what happened is, because Luther allowed people to question the Roman Catholic Church, people said, I don't think Jesus is present at all. And Luther went, you've lost your coconut. If you not read the Bible, and these guys were like, well, I think it's just symbolic. I think when Jesus said is, what he meant was symbolizes. So what Jesus said is, this bread, it symbolizes my body. Right? So, you know, take this cup of wine. It symbolizes all the blood of all the people who have ever died to defend our freedoms. And we all take a drink from it. That could be possible, couldn't it? Couldn't Jesus say, this symbolizes me? Every time you eat bread, remember, I died for you. That would make sense, wouldn't it? Makes sense to me. Why not? So they said, well, I think we should do it that way. And I think the point is, it's just a remembrance. Nothing's actually happening in this feast. It's just a time for us to remember that Jesus died for us, which is a wonderful thing to remember, isn't it? So every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, remember the Lord's death until he comes, which is what it says in several places. And they said, so it's not, you're right, Luther, it's not transubstantiation. It's just, he's only there in a symbolic way. The bread and the wine are the body and blood of Jesus, <coughs> meaning that when you eat this, your spirit ascends to heaven and eats and has a meal with Jesus there. It's just a symbol, right? And the point that they brought out was, therefore, it's just a memorial feast. And the Catholics said, no, 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 it's not a memorial feast, it's transubstantiation. And they said, no, 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 it's just a symbolic feast. Jesus isn't really present. It's just bread and wine. Get over yourselves. Just remember what Jesus did and we're good to go. And the Lutherans, because we're Lutheran and we're German, and we said, here's the thing. We really like getting stuff from God. So we'll just take both. They said, is it Jesus? We go, yep. And he goes, is it a moral feast? We go, yep. <laughs> They said, no, you have to decide what you can do. We go, nope. Because Jesus gave us both. He said, this is my body. And how did the church interpret that? It's his body. Yeah. Does anything happen at the supper? Or is it just us remembering stuff? Yeah, something actually happens. This is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Well, guess what? It's not just a memorial feast. It actually is doing something. So when you eat the, the bread and wine and receive the body and blood of Christ, you actually receive very forgiveness of your sins. You walk up as a sinner and you walk out a saint, a forgiven sinner. Yeah, now on the way back, you're probably sinning. I've seen some of you. That's why I look down because I don't want any temptation at all, right? Scared to death. Finally, finally forgiven. I don't want to mess it up now. But see, that's the point is is when we go, we actually receive what God promises. Forgiveness of sins. And guess how that is affected? The very body and blood of Christ truly present. Now, we are not going to waste one second trying to explain how that happens. Why does it happen? How does it happen? Because Jesus said so. And we'll just go with that. Which is why your pastor says, don't forget what Jesus said. On the night was you betrayed, he took bread and we had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, right? He actually rehearses the words of Jesus and says, this is what he said. This is what we believe. Period. And he also said, do this in remembrance of me. So we also do this in remembrance of him. We, it was actually in the liturgy today where it said we do this in remembrance of him and every time we do this we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. comes. So there's also a proclamation to the world that you believe the death and resurrection of Christ is for the salvation of the world and that's going to be true until he comes again. Right? 
So this is the meal of the church. It's, it's forward-looking to a second coming. It is a remembrance looking back to his death and resurrection. And it's a meal that actually does something. Christ is truly present in bread and wine. We don't explain how that happens other than he said it. We believe it, right? So when Jesus said this is, he did not say this symbolizes. He said this is. And so we say, okay, just let it be. Right? I, I don't know. Does that make sense? So that's kind of the history of how it develops. And so now what the problem is, people say, well, if you say it's a memorial feast, then you're denying the real presence. And you're saying it's just symbolic. We say, no, 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 we're not denying anything. We're, we're bringing it all in together. Roman Catholics believe how many things? Well, if they take both kinds. They only receive two things. They only receive the body and blood of Christ. Other Protestants receive only two things. only receive bread and wine. We're Lutherans. We want the whole works, right? So we get all four. Mm. We're like, you get bread? Yeah. You get body? Yeah. You get wine? Yup. You get blood? Yup. Is it the actual body and blood of Christ for your sins? Yup. Is it a memorial feast? Yup. Is everybody welcome? Yup. Is it a closed table? Yup. <laughs> And they go, make up your mind. We go, no. no. One thing we will not do is make up our mind. We will always proclaim all the truths of God, even if they don't seem to make sense to us. We just proclaim them and say, yeah, that's what Jesus said. That's what the church has always done. So this is what we do. Uh, sorry, I thought he was calling me. Actually, this is really just a question I've kind of always had. But um, honestly, I believe this too. And, uh, yeah, good. But different, <laughs> different churches... I've, you know, looked into or we've gone to even, uh, they only have communion like twice. Yeah. Like, why, why, do they teach that in seminary? Like, you don't have to have it each week or, and okay, I was actually, so. at my childhood church, we used to have it two times a month and then we got a new pastor and then we yeah. had every week. Yeah. Which I prefer and like, and that's what I've always looked for in a church, but I'm just wondering why, like, there's the difference even among LCMS churches. I can't answer for other LCMS churches. Um, the, the problem is, Luther, Luther is our is our great help, but he's also our terrible burden. It's just awful. And so Luther said something, and we're like, "See, well, one time Luther was like, well, if you just go four times a year, that's probably enough." Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. And it was actually answering a different question, but people have been like, "See, you don't need to go that often." And then it became like this. I don't. I don't want to be mean. Again, I'm not judging other churches. I just, from my experience. Um, a lot of the, the question of how often we should have communion, it dwells into weird questions, which have nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. It's more like, well, you know, yeah. we have Lord's Supper every, every Sunday. We're not going to get out of church in an hour. So we're going to have every other Sunday where we can do other stuff. Maybe we'll have baptisms on those Sundays when we don't have the Lord's Supper. That way, we don't want to have both sacraments in the same service <laughs> and preaching. <laughs> and the kids playing their instruments <coughs> and the choir singing and the, you know, all of a sudden whoa, whoa, we're overtime here. We're in overtime. You know, and, and that becomes a motivation. And, and I'm not being mean as much as it sounds, is just be careful when time becomes your motivation for what you're doing in worship. Nowhere in the Bible is, is an hour the time you're supposed to worship God. You're supposed to worship him all the time, so... So that's, that's a scary motivation. Some, some churches have gotten to the mode of we've got to get this thing done in an hour and we've got to start trimming parts and that, that is a, that's a dangerous road. Okay? Another, another question is a lot of people say, well, we don't want it to happen so often people despise it. Yeah. Oh. Right? And I'm like, yeah, I only brush my teeth once a month too because <laughs> <laughs> I despise the toothpaste. I'm like, oh, I, don't, I don't think this is working anymore. Robin's like, you're good. <laughs> Just don't talk to me. You know, no, I mean, this is, this is kind of, and, I, and I'm being silly about that, but it, it is true. You, you don't despise forgiveness of sins. You crave it. If you sin daily, how often do you need forgiveness? I don't understand why I don't have it every day. See, and this is, and I'm not putting a burden on any of you guys. Not, I'm not, I'm really not. I'm just trying to explain why we think these things through. So if we truly do believe it's given to the church for the forgiveness of sins, then every time the church comes together, what should we do? We should receive forgiveness of sins. We receive it in the word of absolution. We also receive it in the, the Lord's Supper. 
right? We're good. Now, let's be totally blunt. There are places who can't get the elements enough. I have been to places on the mission field who literally are not allowed to have wine. And so they have to have dispensation from the government to even have wine on the premises to receive the Lord's Supper. So they can only do it as frequently as they're allowed to do it. And that's, that's okay, right? What does the church have? It always has the word. Always has the word. So we, don't, we also don't want to worship. Now, now the other side of the coin is we don't change the Lord's Supper into an idol where I can't go to church unless there's a Lord's Supper. Well, what are you saying about the word of God? That it doesn't work? See, and that's the other temptation on the other side of the coin is we get, we get so, so excited about the Lord's Supper. Well, guess what? The Gospel of John doesn't even mention the Lord's Supper. And I'm pretty sure it's pretty true. So we also don't want to turn into an idol where I'm handcuffed. I don't believe God is actually with me or, or forgive me unless I have the Lord's Supper. No, 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 no. The word is sufficient. Martin Luther, we're going to keep invoking Luther today. Luther actually said, if you never receive the Lord's Supper, you can still be a Christian. Because it's the Word. It's the Word of God. Right? So we also don't change the, Lord, the Lord's Supper into an idol. Where, you know, we're going, to have, we're going to have men's club, but first we've got to have the Lord's Supper, otherwise it's not a Christian event. You know, we don't want to do that either, right? It's, it's still, it's Christ coming to us in His Word. So we're always, that's the problem with the church is we're always trying to figure all this out, right? And in this church, we've chosen to have the Lord's Supper every week. Pretty cool. Good. Rejoice in that. If you go to another place and the best church you can find and they, they have it, you know, every other Sunday or something like that, okay. Rejoice in that. Try to figure out why. Try to ask why. You know, see what's going on there. There might be good reasons. There might actually be really good reason. Okay. That's okay. Yeah. Sorry. You've been waiting, wait, Scott in the back. Oh, oh, Gwen, you actually first. Yes, you were, Gwen. I'm sorry. It's all right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's right. All I was going to say was that um, I wish that everybody in the United States or whatever could see, um, and I'm sure you've seen this in places I've never been before, but when we were in Germany this last um, October, um, we went to two churches, one in Berlin and one in Leipzig. Uh huh. St. Lucas Kirche. Actually, it was. The one in Leipzig, anyway, uh-huh. Trinity, it's Trinity in, in Berlin, mm-hmm. Pastor Martin's church. Mm-hmm. And um, Pastor Martin's is German, um, you know, he's a Gottfried. German man. Gottfried, yeah. <laughs> he ministers mostly to people who have escaped from Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan. Yep. As you probably heard, the churches in Germany are like empty of white German people. Um, and Gottfried's church had standing room only of these people who have come over from the east uh-huh. who are craving God's word and craving mm-hmm. the Lord's Supper. And yep. to see the excitement in that, that service was at least two hours long, at least. It was probably two and a half, I can't remember for sure. Because he preached in German and he preached in Farsi uh-huh. and they read all the lessons and all the, um, everything was yep. German and Farsi. We were there, so he threw in English too. Yeah. And, but the thing is, the Lord's Supper, what's made me think of this, like, there was like, we're squished with, you know, about this much room for our little bottoms on the benches on the side because it was just so stuffed. Mm-hmm. And it was time for communion and he finished consecrating the elements. And there's no usher, like, releasing you tumbling into the they just went yeah. they all rush up for it they wanted the Lord's Supper so it's, badly yep. and we were waiting our turn and people kept flooding in from the balcony and the basement where they were waiting because they couldn't sit in the church yep. just hundreds of people just clamoring for the Lord's Supper and, and all of them had almost all of them were um, people who had come from Iran and Iraq and yeah, refugees. Afghanistan and yep. a lot of them a lot of good work going on there yeah and a lot of the people in Leipzig still live in refugee camps yep um, and they they travel two hours or more to get to this church yep. to worship there's a lot of good work going on right there there is they, um, they crave it they want we're it working so a lot with our partner church in Germany the, the Zelt which is uh, it's our partner church it's a very small church body but they're confessional Lutherans that are working with the refugees. So the LCMS and them are working together in these places. Leipzig and Berlin, um, we have some work in Chemnitz, Germany going on, yeah, some places throughout. Um, it's really good work. But yeah, um, I was actually just meeting with a missionary, I won't tell you who or where, I've been to a lot of places lately, and they were telling me um, 
that when they first started doing mission work, they weren't a pastor yet. But they weren't in a place that had a pastor. So they didn't have the Lord's Supper for two years. And when they finally got back to home service in the United States, it was funny. He said, I was, I was actually there to do a missionary presentation. You've had them here, right? Where they come down and tell you what's up going on and try to raise prayer support and monetary support, right? And he said, I didn't, I didn't know this was going to happen, but I went to the Lord's Supper for the first time in two years. He said, I started weeping. Right there in front of the whole congregation, I started weeping. Because I hadn't had it in two years. So th- this is actually a meal. But it's more than just a remembrance. It's more than just a theological idea. This is actually your Savior coming to you in body and blood to forgive your sins and say, today you'll be with me in paradise. Promise. I promise. Right? Whatever you bring to the table, whatever you bring, everything that makes you unworthy to come, everything, and it does, it makes you unworthy to come. He takes all that and he nails it to his cross and he gives to you the very body and blood of your Savior and he says, you are forgiven and you are mine and nothing can change that. Right? This is food that will well up in you into eternal life because it's the very body and blood of Christ for you. Right? It's that amazing of a meal. It just is. And Jesus gives it to you freely. Scott? I I heard stories where churches did not have pastors. Yeah. So there would be, I'll call it a traveling. Yeah, so. He would visit, and those are the services where they would have communion. And so therefore, those. Yeah. So sometimes that's the historical reason churches have developed a practice. So in our in our Lutheran Church Missouri Synod structure, um, okay. So we are a national church body. Do you guys know that the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is the is the national church body that we all belong to? It's headquartered in St. Louis, actually in Kirkwood, and that's where a lot of us here actually work. Uh, We work in the headquarters, Um, but that building is not a church. It's just it's just a headquarters. Right? It's just where we type on computers and stuff. But every, what we did then was we broke down the United States into 35 districts. Most of them are geographic, some are not. Uh, but the 35 districts to help the national church body kind of work with local churches. I'm getting there, don't worry, there has a point to this. And then within those districts, we have circuits. And those circuits actually reflect what Scott's talking about is back in the day, there used to be not be enough pastors to serve all the congregations in an area. So there'd be one pastor who would serve his church and then get on his horse and actually ride around in a circuit. And what he would do is he'd bring the Lord's Supper with him in that circuit. He might not get there every week. He might get there once a month. He might get there every other week. But in the, when he wasn't there, the lay people would deliver the word of God, usually read Luther's sermon or Walther's or something like that, right? They'd find a sermon of a church father and read it to the people. And then, because they didn't have a pastor. Then the pastor would come on his circuit, literally on a circuit, he would stop and give the, give the Lord's Supper, preach a sermon, do Bible class, something like that, right? And it might not be on Sunday. It would be on Thursday. But it was whenever he could come. We still do this, by the way. We still do this. There are still places in the United States and in mission fields where this is still the practice, is whenever that guy shows up is when church is. Sound the, sound the alarm. It's time to have church because the circuit visitor is here. And he brings with him word and sacrament ministry and the people stop whatever they're doing and come. We are blessed. We are blessed to be able to come here every single Sunday morning and have a full-time pastor who delivers to us word and sacrament. We are blessed even beyond that to have seminarians who come alongside and help us out and also include us in this larger idea of church. Dude, you are part of the Missouri Senate. You're actually training the future pastors. There he is, right in the back. He is going to grow up and be called by some congregation to serve them word and sacrament ministry. You get to help him. You get to help raise him up. The poor kid's going to be a little, a little warped when it comes to Bible class and stuff, but other than that, it'll be all right. You know? But I mean, this is part of the blessing we have of living in St. Louis near a seminary is that we get to participate in these young men. We get to be blessed by them being with us, but we also get to participate in their training. Right? Because we pray one day, and we know they will with, with, with Eric, that they'll be very blessed to have him as a pastor. And we're going to say, go be a blessing to somebody. 
right? Go be the blessing that our pastor is to us. Go be that to somebody out there, right? So that's that's kind of how all this works. Now, John chapter... <laughs> I feel like exactly a week ago we got to John 6 at this time. Aye. All right, John 6, 1 to 14. I'm going to read it, just going to want to, and let's read it. John 6, 1 to 14. After this, which is weird, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because he, they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Okay, so last week we did these questions, so you should know all the answers. We're going to review them, apparently. So, number one, what is the setting for the sign? On a mountain. It's on a mountain. Why is that important? That's where he does stuff. Right, he does stuff on mountains. Uh -huh. Remember back in chapter 5? We were talking about this guy named Moses. Do you know anything about Moses on a mountain? Yes, okay. So Moses met God on Mount Sinai, okay? And the reason Moses met God on Mount Sinai was to show that the promise of the Passover was fulfilled. Remember this? Go back to Exodus chapter 3. You read this in church a couple weeks ago. And, and Jesus, and Jesus, yeah. Jesus appeared and said, Moses in a burning bush, right? He says, I'm Yahweh. And then Moses is like, what's up? And he goes, this is how you will know that I've kept my promises. When you lead my people out of Egypt and you worship me on this mountain. So Moses meeting Yahweh on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20 and following is the fulfillment of God's promise to rescue his people. Right? We think of it as the giving of Ten Commandments. But how do the Ten Commandments start? I am the Lord your God who called you out of Egypt. That's how the Ten Commandments start. He identifies himself as the God who saves his people. So, when you think of Moses and mountain, what you want to think is... God saves Ooh, that's not good writing. Saves his people. God saves his people, and he does it by fulfilling his promise to do so. Right? We're going back to the whole book of Exodus, and we're going to recap all of that in this chapter. Okay? So we have Moses from chapter 5, we're up on a mountain, and what time of the year is it? It's the Passover. It's the Passover. Now, you guys are all experts in the Gospel of John. So if he mentions Passover once, how many times is he probably going to mention it? Three times. Okay? The first Passover, there are three Passovers in the Gospel of John, which means the Gospel lasts how long? Two years, right? There's a Passover, one year, another Passover, that's the end of the first year, third Passover, the end of the second year. There's years between, right? So this gospel lasts around two and a half years, two years, something like that. There are three Passovers. 
It's in chapter 2, chapter 6, and chapters 11, 12, and 13. They all is one. One Passover. They keep referring to the same Passover. Okay, but it's mentioned these three times. So, it's in chapter 2. We can go look. Go back to John 2. Okay, it's after the after the miracle of the wedding of Cana with the water and the wine, chapter 2, verse 13. Okay, 2.13. It says that Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, then you go to chapter 6. Then in verse 4. And it says... Now, the Passover, the Feast of the Jews is at hand. Sound familiar? And then you go to chapter 1155. I think it's 1155. That's what it says in my head, anyway. Okay, 1155. So it's 1155, 12-1, and 13-1. 1155. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And then, in 12-1, six days before the Passover... And then 13, John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew. Okay? So those are all the Passovers in the Gospel of John. 11, 12, and 13 are all referred to the same Passover. So, we are now at the second Passover feast. So these are all the Passovers. And what you'll notice is, what happened right before this one? Water into wine. Okay, what happened right before this one? No, it's going to happen after. What happened right before it? He healed the guy's son and he taught about who he is. What's going to happen right before the one in 11? What happened in the beginning of John 11? Lazarus was raised. Okay, what's going to happen after 2.13? Cleansing of the temple. What happens after 6? feeding of the 5,000. And what happens after 11, 12, and 13? Death and resurrection. Okay? So these Passovers in the Gospel of John are the major movements of the Gospel geographically and theologically. So when John says the Passover is at hand, that is the sacramental meal of the Old Testament. Right? God saved his people by them putting blood on the door of their houses, blood of the lamb, so that the angel of, of his wrath would pass over their houses. So now we have the Passover with Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? And so this is going to symbolize Jesus as the temple, Jesus as the bread of heaven that comes down to feed God's people, and Jesus as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. <clears throat> See how it works? So, on the Passover, if you're a good Jew at the time of the Passover, where do you go? You go to the temple. And when you're at the temple, what do you do? What is the Passover? It is a meal. And this meal that takes place in the temple Reminds us that God is the one who saves his people from their sins. Do you see how it's working? Jesus is actually saying, I am the, the, the fulfillment of God's promises to save you from your sins. And the Gospel of John is constructed to make sure you hear that. Even in the way it, it moves Jesus around in the Holy Land. Okay? Does that make sense? All right, well, there you go. That's John 6. We'll get to the rest in a couple weeks. All right. Thanks for all your questions. That was fun. Let's pray. Lord, the more we talk about you and your kingdom, the more we're amazed at the ways that you save us and the ways that you give to us that we can know we can experience, we can hold in our hands and taste. We can hear it in our ears. We can see it in your church. 
that you are a God who is with us. And we rejoice that just like our brother, the thief on the cross, we hear the words of Jesus this day, that we are with him. Keep us in that faith, that we live our lives trusting in your promises kept in Christ, that we trust in the baptism that you've given to us. We are baptized into Christ Jesus. We trust in your word that we hear. We trust in the meal that we receive, that all of this is to remind us and to give us your salvation in Christ. In his name we pray. Thank you all.